Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about... What's the fraud? There is no fraud. That's why I can't find the fraud. Hey, it's Dr. Phil, and you have found your way to fill in the blanks again. Today, we have an amazing and unusual episode. I say unusual because I'm sharing with you an episode that was actually aired on Dr. Phil. And it was so special that I'm breaking tradition and including it on the podcast. The episode was entitled, Two Years Later, Have Black Lives Changed? And what we were talking about is the fact that it's been two years, almost, since George Floyd's murder, May 25th, 2020. It was a catalyst for the Black Lives Movement, and it saw millions of citizens of all colors and backgrounds taking to the streets, demanding an end, not just to police brutality against black people, but to the social inequalities between whites and blacks in America. These are inequalities that have existed since the country's inception. Some things have changed as a result. There's no question about it. Juneteenth has become a federal holiday. But critics have called this and other changes performative and superficial, which brings us to this question. It is now two years later, and exactly what has changed for the average black American? And so we spent the hour exploring that with some of the top experts in the country. One of my favorite experts, Dr. Sean Harper. He's a professor of diversity and expert from USC. Rashad Turner, ex-Black Lives Matter organizer and director at ACLU Minnesota. Lydia Pope, NAREB president in Ohio, really knows the real estate market. Allison Mahaley, white ally, North Carolina, has come up with some great toolkits for people to really help. Natasha Scruggs, anti-racist attorney in Kansas City, passionate, smart, understands the struggles. Keith Corbin, chef and owner of Alta Adams, a Los Angeles restaurant. And I made a visit to that restaurant. We did a field shoot there, talked to some of his employees and some of my black employees. We all sat around the table, had some great food, and talked about what was really going on from their point of view. I was here to learn, and I did. So allow me to repurpose this episode because it was aired on the last day of Black History Month, and I think it bears further listen. Enjoy. I, I really wanted to talk about where we are now versus where we were a couple of years ago. And Dr. Harper, you told my staff that centuries of systemic racism certainly won't be undone in a summer. 
Uh, you know, we know that. Uh, but is progress being made? Well, I think that one noteworthy uh, indicator of progress is that there's now more national and global consciousness about anti-blackness and about structural and systemic racism. But consciousness alone will not redress centuries of racial violence, negligence, and harm. We need policy change. Has there ever been a better time to be black in America than now? Well, um, you know, honestly, I'm 46. In all 46 years of my life, I've enjoyed being black in America. What we see almost always is a three steps forward, two steps back as it pertains to racial equity and racial progress for black Americans and other people of color. You know, think about, for example, the victory, if you want to call it that, that we saw in the Derek Chauvin trial, mm -hmm. the murderer of George Floyd, right? Um, that felt like progress. You know, to be sure, justice for me means that George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and others would still be alive. But still, right, like some folks celebrated the outcome in Derek Chauvin's trial as victory. But then there's the outcome in the Kim Potter trial, right, where she is sentenced to two years in prison for killing a black man. That is what I mean by the three steps forward, two steps back. Right. And Allison, what events in your life have inspired you to speak up for the black community? I mean, as a white ally, and you've, you've put action steps in, in your advocacy. It hasn't been just in your heart. You've put action steps in. Just having the courage to move from um, understanding these things and admitting that they're problems to being to crossing that line and saying, I personally can do something about this. So in terms of my personal life, what happened? Um, I was a school teacher. I taught seventh grade in a rural county in North Carolina. And I got my end of grade scores at the end of the year. And not one black boy in my class passed the reading test. And I had to look at that. I can look at those facts. And because of the kind of person that I am, I knew that I had to take responsibility for that. Um, and that set me, that changed the course of my life. Um, and uh, I think it changed the course of some of the students in my classroom's lives. Yeah, uh, no doubt. Because you, you see it and do something <laughs> about it. The first topic is a controversial one, and that's voter suppression. Mm which has a long and ugly history in the U.S., but some say it has recently resurfaced. Do you think there is active voter suppression going on? I think, Dr. Phil, we do see uh, examples of voter suppression happening around the country. The thing that I like to point out, though, with voter suppression is that it's never really an issue when things are going well for the Democrats. When the Democrats feel some type of pressure or they feel like they're losing that black vote, that continuously gets them elected, then it becomes an issue. I will say that not being able to give people water or food as they're standing in line is as ridiculous as it sounds. Yeah, and you say that's important because black voters will stand in line all day long. Absolutely. If necessary, and, and if they can't 
go to the bathroom, they can't get a drink, they can't get mm. some nourishment or, or whatever, then that cuts that line down. Absolutely. Right. So I think we all want the opportunity to exercise that right to vote. But the question that always comes up in my community is, do we see those votes translate to black lives actually improving? Yeah. And Natasha, you say incarceration is the biggest barrier. I say incarceration is the biggest barrier because there are 2.2 million people in America that are incarcerated. There are 7.8 million people on probation and parole. All of those people do not have the right to vote. Most people think that once they become formally incarcerated, the country calls them felons, I don't use that term, but most people think that formally incarcerated people cannot vote and they're afraid to vote because they don't want to be penalized for that. So that means that we have almost 10 million Americans currently that cannot vote and these are the most vulnerable. A lot of critics say, Sean, that this is not about suppressing the vote, it's about suppressing fraud. And there's been a lot of study about this. If somebody wants to actually dig down and look at non-traditional voting, like mail-in votes prior to uh, voting prior to actual election day, that sort of thing. And I've actually done a deep dive on that and I can't find one shred of evidence that suggests that that favors one party over the other or increases the level of fraud one whit. I can't find it from any independent evaluators, whether they're left, right, or center. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about... What's the fraud? There is no fraud. That's why I can't find the fraud. I, I think that, you know, there are these scare tactics, these boogeymen, if you will. Um, and this is one of them that, you know, black people and other people of color are stealing votes and that dead people are voting and so on and so forth. When we look at the evidence across the states, you know, oftentimes there are one or two or maybe a dozen cases out of millions of voters, this is just not a thing. This is about Georgia turning blue. It is about other states in the 2020 election that were flipped. So this is really about suppressing, you know, the influence of Black voters, most especially Black women voters, who turn out in historic numbers in these elections. It's about undoing the influence of, of black voters. Well, today is the last day of Black History Month, and we're discussing the societal inequalities between black and white people in America and assessing whether there has been really any substantive change since the global protests that resulted from the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery in 2020. Now, one area that my panel of experts all agree on are the reported racial disparities in real estate practices and income. Take a look. America has a major racial wealth gap. The Federal Reserve says the median wealth for white families is almost eight times that of black families. A new report found 19% of black families in the U.S. have a negative net worth. Many experts say that the root of that problem is real estate. The gap could be widening between black and white neighborhoods. 
One of the drivers of that wealth gap is redlining, the practice of mortgage lenders denying loans to people based on their race or where they live, with those areas marked with red lines on maps. Although the practice was outlawed in 1968, its effects are still being felt today. I think you see it in every city in America. I mean, this is where of the basis of segregated neighborhoods remains to this day. Despite the practice being illegal, black loan applicants are still turned away by banks at a higher rate than white applicants. The widespread use of redlining has allowed generations of white Americans to build wealth through equity in homes and businesses, further widening a wealth gap African Americans have yet to rebound from. Activist Kimberly Jones went viral when she compared the economic inequality black people face to the game of Monopoly. I played 400 rounds of Monopoly with you and I had to play and give you every dime that I made. And then for 50 years, every time that I played, I, if you didn't like what I did, you got to burn it like they did in Tulsa. How can you win? You can't win. The game is fixed. So when they say, why do you burn down the community? It's not ours. We don't own anything. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. That's the equity. We don't own anything. And when there is ownership in homes, it's not at the same level as far as the value of the home, the equity in the home. It's, it's not the same. So building wealth is an uphill battle. When the gap is getting wider, when you go from 44% to 43%, it doesn't look like blacks are moving up. We're moving down. And it's because of all the different systematic racism that is in place today that has to change. And it has to stop, and it has to start from community, but it has to end on the top where they begin to make a change in America. The more that they continue to allow the, 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 the challenges in the loan practicing, the loan level where blacks are having higher interest rates. Mm. When blacks, if you have a 720 credit score and you got $7,000 in the bank, you're still going to have a worse loan than a white American that has the same amount. That is true. I've experienced it with my family member. And I took her to the bank, and I made the bank make an adjustment on her loan product. And well, that exists today. So people know with redlining, we're talking about discriminatory lending practice dating back to the 1930s, when lenders would draw red lines on maps around neighborhoods that were predominantly black as a way to deny a mortgage claiming it was high risk. I mean, it was just, it was just blatant. There's no other way to describe it, right? Yeah, redlining is still there. Just because you don't see the red lines on the map doesn't mean it doesn't yeah, exist. Yeah, it still exists. So what do you want to say? As a, as a white person, I was, I was actually explicitly told that if a black person moved into our neighborhood, it would lower the value of our homes. And so these um, practices were put into place to, to cause white flight out of neighborhoods so that realist, realtors could come in and buy the properties at lower prices and then flip them. I mean, this has been going on, but the thing is, is that this is about bias. This is about unconscious bias. And it is so, anti-black 
bias is so predominant in our country and no one wants to talk about that. I've experienced a story of steering. When I bought my first house, I went to buy my first home. You know, they took me into a neighborhood that I didn't ask. So when they did that, I didn't buy the property. Guess what I did? I decided to get my real estate license and run the National Black Organization to talk about the issues with steering and the importance of putting black folks where you want them to go rather where they want to go. Uh, two Long Island realtors accused of racial discrimination are, according to reports, back to business as usual. So what happened there? After a 2019 Newsday expose revealed systemic racial steering in which real estate agents direct home buyers to specific localities based on their race, on Long Island, 67 agents and executives were subpoenaed as part of a state probe into the matter that ultimately resulted in new legislation. This kind of made people stand up and take notice that there was really something to this and they couldn't just continue to do this without people paying attention. Now, overall, agents provided white 50% uh, more listings than blacks. Mm. Now, think about that. 50% 50, 50 more listings were shown to white buyers than black buyers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you said something interesting about getting into the law. You said, yeah, we do need uh, black lawyers, but we need people that understand the struggles. They don't just need to understand the law. They need to understand the struggles of the people functioning under the law. That's what really motivated you. Absolutely. I believe that um, I, when you have that experience and when you have family members that are going through this, that are being discriminated against on every level, you can understand what's best on how to treat them. As far as real estate, appraisals are even, um, even discriminatory. A black family will try to get an appraisal on their home, and a white, and they, they will have their white friend get it, and it'll be higher. Mm -hmm. So it all, like we said over and over and over, racial discrimination and racial bias is the biggest factor in all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it's all just these these biases, these paradigms that are not real. That if people could just question them, and not just go along with it and say, why do I think this? Why do I think that this black family deserves less? Why do I think that this black neighborhood deserves less, this black school deserves less, or this black person accused of a crime deserves less? Mm -hmm. The black folks I know, and I, love, I know lots of them, black people don't choose to be poor. We don't what? choose to go to underfunded schools. We don't choose to be in communities that lack resources and jobs. We don't choose to you know, live in communities where we have inequitable access to high-quality health care. We don't choose to be in the lowest-paid, least powerful roles in corporations and other places where we work. There are systems that, you know, cyclically place us in those positions. So let's Absolutely. Be, so let's be real. A Black community, we know that we have challenges with the schools. We know we have challenges even with the grocery stores that doesn't have healthy foods. We have challenges, not just all of those, but in the police force. We don't have enough in the community to assist us. So what do we do about it? What are the solutions? So again, it goes back to the partnerships of everyone, white, black, Asian, Hispanic. You have to come into our community, feel what we feel, see what we see, 
I, you know, I, I encourage you to spend a week in a black community. Come back to my old neighborhood and see how you feel. Tell me what you get when you leave my neighborhood after that day, when you can't even walk to a store because it's a payday lender down the street, or you have to get food that is expired. You know, so that's what, these are the things we have to bring education back, but we have to come together as NARAB and anyone to bring it all together. Rashad, what ultimately informed your decision to leave the Black Lives Matter movement? There was a lot. There was a lot. Um, I, th I think Black Lives Matter at the time, I believe it was about 2016, where Black Lives Matter, along with the NAACP and the American Federation of Teachers, called for a moratorium on charter schools. And to me, that was an attack on black families. Um, I believe 80% across the United States of black families and also other people of color appreciate and support charter schools. To, so to see BLM come out and say, hey, we don't think there should be any more charter schools was completely absurd to me and did not show me that this organization truly believed that our black lives matter. Mm -hmm. One other thing I'll point out is that I think we've spent years, decades, trying to change the hearts and minds of everyone in this country, except for our own people. Miss Lydia mentioned that when she ran into difficulties trying to find housing, discrimination, she mentioned that she went and got her real estate license, right? She had that determination. And I think that's what's missing from the black narrative right now. I don't think we hear about how great we actually are as black people. And I don't think we hear the message that we as a people have to step up. I think it's much easier um, to sort of go with the flow of blaming white supremacy, discrimination, all of these things. But you're looking at four black people up here out of many in this country who have found a way to be successful. And I will tell you, I don't think any of us stopped at just blaming white supremacy or blaming the system, right? So the thing I would say to allies like Allison and others, you have to stop helping us, right? Stop trying to help us because it hasn't led to black people being able to stand on our own two feet in this country. I wholeheartedly I, disagree with that. First of so all, do I. I honestly believe that the problem is systemic racism. I'm just gonna say, I'm here because my grandfather, who grew up in a, a economically violent area, meaning that the state was economically violent, he went to, he took his, he got his master's degree and he went to law school, but he couldn't finish. I can't expect for black people whose who grandparents were denied access to education, whose grandparents were denied access to jobs, to have the same opportunities that I have. What, what you're saying is, look at us. That's exceptionalism. That's not for the masses. Absolutely. When we talk about allies, what we're talking about is white people talking to other white people and inviting them into understanding that racism against white people is not a thing. The, the racism that exists in America was built on slavery, on the backs of black people, and it has evolved into mass incarceration. And we need to understand that, that making things better for people of color is not gonna make it worse for white people. I believe in a concept called the dominoes of oppression, and I believe that there are millions of dominoes that fall 
that lead us to mass incarceration and lead us to police brutality. And I believe that all of them need their own individualized attention. Of course, we tell our kids everything that we, we possibly can. My grandparents, my mother told me everything. But when I step into the school and they tell me that I'm not smart and they tell me that I'm dumb and I can't read and they tell me that I'm a criminal, if I, if I uh, skip school and they tell me I can't go to college, when I got to college, they told me I could not be an attorney. They told me they could not see me as an attorney. So I can't say... But we, who we, counterbalances that message for you? Like I said, it was, my, it was my upbringing. Well, let's turn our focus to changes that need to happen with small businesses who were severely impacted by coronavirus shutdowns and social distancing. When you add an unequal wealth gap and chronic underfunding to the mix, Black-owned businesses are especially at risk. Well, I wanted to learn more about this problem, so I visited a popular soul food restaurant in South Los Angeles, Alta Adams, to meet the owner and chef, Keith Corbin, and his terrific staff. Hey, hey guys, how are you? Man, it smells good in here. Man, how you doing? Thank How's it you. going? Welcome good to, to Alta, you. welcome to Alta, man. Oh man, it Glad smells good. You. Thanks for having me. Why was choosing this historic West Adams neighborhood important to you? I'm from Watts, like not too far from here, on the other side of South Central. And I know this community from growing up in LA. So it just felt just like home. We were very intentional on like connecting with the community when we came in. How diversified is your customer base? Very. A good food finds an audience, doesn't it? You know it? what I mean? Yeah. We intend to cook with love in order to feed the soul, yeah. to nourish and sustain people, no matter who you are, black, white, Asian, or other. Everything I see coming out of here looks good. Are these your recipes? Yes. Let's go do this. Let's find a place to chow down. Do you feel more comfortable working in a restaurant where you serve the community that you know and that know you? And I feel a lot more comfortable and like I can be myself at work. Like I've never worked somewhere where I can walk through the door and not have to change how I speak or like how I interact with anyone. So I'm like 100% myself at work, which I really appreciate here. And that goes for like the whole staff. I feel like we've cultivated an environment where everyone can be themselves um, and it shows. That's amazing. Yeah. How can White Allies help support and create more businesses like this in the black community? Invest. And intention, yeah. I think. Like being intentional with purchases and doing your due diligence and researching and putting your money toward black businesses. Not just patronage, but investing in the businesses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you're an investor or an entrepreneur, you can invest in other companies and help them build as a way to give back. And then also continue your patronage outside of Black History Month, Juneteenth, those holidays. Just pick a random Sunday to show up or a random Tuesday for lunch. For me, it's just all about opportunity. And that's why it's very important that we provide opportunity. And I, I like to provide opportunity for people that's in the situation I was similar in. You help former inmates. Yes. I'm a former inmate. I know. And you give them jobs here? Yes. Like when we opened this restaurant, Everybody on the management staff running the restaurant were formerly incarcerated. Me, my sous chef, my general manager, 
everybody. Like there's many people in these communities mm -hmm. that if they had an opportunity, like can bring value to our society. So going back to that question about what can allies do or what white American do, like provide opportunity. And like more importantly, recognize that we have value, right? Yeah, I was homeless when I was a teenager. Tyler Perry is a dear friend of mine. He was living in his car. I was homeless and, before this. Yeah, and somebody always had to help. It's not hand out, it's hand up. Yeah. And one thing I can do, of course, is talk about it because I got a big megaphone. Allegra, your supervisor, Astra Austin, pitched me doing this topic and she and I have done a lot of shows in this space before. What was it like putting this show together? Yeah, I feel like this is a really important topic to do. And I'm also thankful that we get to use your platform, Dr. Phil, and that you want to help you know, amplify black voices. I think there's a lot of stereotypes having to do with black lives and what black people can do and aspire to be. And I think that it's really important to show positive black people, you know, on this stage and on this platform. Mariana, you say you've never been treated any differently. I definitely feel like I've never been treated differently for what I do. And I think, especially where we work, everyone is very accepting. Another thing that I love about our show is we also have an amazing African-American female, you know, at the top in a position mm -hmm. of power in Astra. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important, I'm sure you know, Dr. Phil, like to be able to have us behind the scenes making the decisions and to have a seat at the table to be able to bring forward and, you know, produce stories like this. So when I came on board, Dr. Phil, I realized his voice has such a wide reach to reach people that are not in a diverse neighborhood and do not know about other cultures, but he is able to help people expand their mind. I think that's so much of what we need right now. Times are changing, and nothing's changing as fast as we want it to, but it's changing. Mm -hmm. So Laferne, are you gonna give me some of that macaroni and cheese or uh -oh. not? <laughs> you know, this is all mine, but- That's my um, question for you. <laughs> she ain't ate all the cheese off the top. <laughs> this is really good food. Yes, it's great. And you got a great staff. Uh, mine eats all the cheese off the top of <laughs> stuff, but you know, what are you gonna do? Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Well, Keith is here now in the studio audience, so hello again, Keith. Hey, buddy. I wanna thank you again for the amazing hospitality that you showed to me and my staff there. Uh, you've been watching all hour long. What's your takeaway from this discussion here? What do, you, what do you think needs underlining more than anything else? I mean, everybody made great points, just from my experience, because I've lived both. I lived in the gang culture. I, I've been did 10 years in prison, and now I am me and my um, fiance, our homeowner in an affluent area, right? And I have a business. So I can speak from both sides. And it's not just about picking up yourself, picking up your bootstrap or like she was, the young lady was saying, the exception being for everybody. Like I can't expect like the people that I grew up with to have to be where I'm at. Cause I had opportunity. Someone actually gave me an opportunity, right? Placed value on me, seen value in me. And I think that for the most part, from my experience, America just does not value black. That's just from my experience, how I feel. Yeah, and then you did say yesterday, when you were given that opportunity, you really seized it. And I asked you what your biggest obstacle was, and you said discipline. Discipline. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, it's certainly a smooth running operation now. I can tell you, I, I certainly give it the thumbs up. I can tell you for sure, <laughs> the, the food is great. Um, today's topic is an important one. Uh, we went longer than our allotted time. You can see more of our conversation on drphil.com. Uh, I would really like to thank all of my guests here today. And I, one of the things I would really like to acknowledge is everybody being willing to have an open conversation about this and hear everybody else out. I think if everybody would have this approach, it would be not about winning an argument, but about solving a problem. And uh, so I really applaud you guys for your approach to this.